This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I originally called this talk Paradigms and Possibilities, but it's sort of morphed while I've been working on it. And I think a more apropos title is probably 50 Random Pain Studies and What They Mean to Me. Um, I will admit that I sort of break all of the rules I'm supposed to follow when I do a PowerPoint talk. So you'll see I have a lot of slides. They're very wordy. Um, and I uh, include a ton of evidence because I, I think the evidence is really interesting. I'm very driven by it. And I have the um, the bios for each of my um, uh, studies on the slide so that if you are like me and you want to look it up afterwards, you can do that. So let's just jump right in with a little bit of background and some scary looking charts about the prevalence and the trajectories of pain in the US. So first off, Americans report more pain than people in other countries. Um, in the Western and developed world, certainly we're at the top. Um, and there's no clear reason for this, but there are some interesting uh, theories out there about happiness, loneliness, general health, lifestyle, things like that. Um, opioid use in the U.S. is higher than in any other country in the world by more than it by more than twice most of the industrialized countries in the world. And that 2017 data is despite the fact that opioid prescriptions have been gradually decreasing in the U.S. since 2012. The costs of chronic pain already outstripped the costs of other diseases back in 2010, and that was before we really hit the increase that you could see on the previous slide. So this is direct healthcare costs plus loss of productivity, and you can see that it's far beyond the costs of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. Chronic pain affects more people, and that's a larger, um, I think that's a large part of it, is the prevalence. So the rates of chronic pain are increasing over time in the U.S., and they've actually been increasing since studies on this began in the 1990s. And in one study in North Carolina, specifically looking at chronic back pain, from 1992 to 2006, they saw that it almost tripled. I haven't seen a follow-up on that particular statistic. And reported pain is increasing in all age groups as well, although overall it does tend to be higher in midlife and older. There could be all sorts of reasons for this. Increased chronic illness related to obesity, stress, toxins, illness, improved ability to survive life-threatening illnesses like cancer or significant physical trauma probably contribute, but it could also be due to societal changes in expectations. It might be that with cultural changes that have occurred, people are less accepting of the minor aches and pains, and they now indicate that they have chronic or significant pain, but maybe in the past they would have thought that to be normal or typical states of being. But what this chart I think clearly does not imply is that medical treatment is getting better and better at treating pain. Compare this chart, for example, with this chart. 
So advances in healthcare, treatment options, and societal and behavioral changes have greatly reduced the rates of death by heart disease or cancer, while the incidence of people reporting moderate or severe pain on a regular basis has increased. When I ask patients about their treatment goals when I see them, all the time they say, I just want to be out of pain, which absolutely makes sense. But if we had any safe, effective, rapid, and universal treatments for pain, we would gladly provide these. The study of pain is fascinating, but the treatment is anything but obvious or clearly formulaic. So enter integrative medicine. Why should we care about integrative medicine in pain? Well, the addition of integrative medicine to typical care, at least in a hospital setting, has been shown to reduce the pain that patients experience by approximately two points on the typical zero to 10 point pain scale compared to the conventional pain care alone. It also reduces cost in hospitalized patients by approximately $900 per hospitalization. This data comes from a large Minneapolis hospital where there's an inpatient integrative medicine team that takes referrals and can provide services like massage therapy, acupuncture, aromatherapy, relaxation training, music therapy, and healing touch and Reiki, generally within 48 hours from the time they're referred. Multiple additional studies have shown that the addition of non-pharmacosurgical strategies like natural medications like cannabinoids or cognitive behavioral therapy, acupuncture, body awareness techniques like yoga or tai chi are associated with a decreased use of opioid medication. So what is integrative medicine and where can I get some? Honestly, all of our conventional or Western or allopathic or whatever you want to call it, medicine is actually integrative at its roots. Even 2,400 years ago, Hippocrates had many things to say about diet and exercise. And whenever any provider recommends exercise or deep breathing or eating more vegetables or sleep hygiene to their patients, they are practicing integrative medicine. But in medical training, I do think there's a sort of bias toward pharmaceuticals and procedures. And I personally think of this as a bias of repetition. For example, even when we clearly know that to treat hypertension, Weight management, diet, exercise, and stress management are critical because we have had to memorize so much about medications, like the mechanisms, the dosages, the contraindications, and the side effects for each one. Those medications are at the front of our thoughts, and it can easily be the first recommendation we reach for, especially in a medical care structure that primarily values efficiency. And I'm also definitely guilty of this. When I look at an MRI before I even see a patient and I'm thinking about injections I could do or thinking about how to match medications to their reported symptoms. But I think all doctors and patients actually want to pursue a whole person ideal kind of care, a non-reductionist strategy that seeks to optimize physical wellness and psycho-spiritual health rather than just to reduce bothersome symptoms. There are lots of ways that people incorporate non-pharmacosurgical or non-pharmacosurgical medicine, and these can be traditional medical systems like traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, natural or nutritional-based medications, healing modalities like massage, osteopathic manipulation, or Reiki, lifestyle changes like exercise, sleep, social connection, pursuit of passions and joy, spiritual practices, 
mind body practices, and a ton more. To be honest, my integrative medicine lecture that I give my fellows is two hours long, and I'm barely going to just scratch the surface here today. So this picture comes from the Institute for Functional Medicine, which is a continuing medical education and training organization dedicated to training healthcare providers to systematically evaluate the critical domains of health and wellness. And I'm going to zoom here in on the bottom. So any doctor or patient for that matter can use this schematic to think for themselves how they could best optimize the factors that make up the roots of our health. You can find it easily on a search engine. And honestly, this diagram looks simple, but each one of these factors would deserve a couple full lectures on its own. So I'm going to touch on a few particulars of the roots and trunk with an emphasis on providing folks with self-directed strategies that they can use to help prevent inevitable acute pains and injuries from turning into chronic ones. And I'm going to talk about experience, attitudes, and belief, which I think has crossover with stress and trauma toxins, sleep, microorganisms, and movement. So a few definitions to understand pain studies. Acute pain, we're typically talking about pain that is less than two to six weeks, can be related to illness, injury, or surgery, or an experimental model where some, some kind of pain is applied to a patient, whether they put their arm in a bucket of cold water or like a hot box where they use electricity. Subacute pain, we're usually talking about somewhere between two weeks to six months. Chronic pain, we're generally talking about six months or more. Again, experimental pain is an applied external pain stimulus typically, um, and I'm not aware of any chronic experimental pains, only acute experimental pains. Um, and nociception is a little bit different than pain. It's a part of pain. It is the physiologic cognition-free experience of possible tissue damage. And pure nociception is what the nerves from our tissues send to our brain. And then our brain can use that information and create or not create a pain signal. I think it's important to understand the different types of pain that a person could discuss here, because most of what I'm going to talk about today is going to be applicable to subacute and chronic pain that is not related to cancer or, you know, big chronic non-cancer pain bucket. Um, and what I say might not be applicable to cancer pain or acute pain, which tend to act a little bit different. So we can already somewhat predict what acute pains will become chronic. There's a ton of data looking at back pain. So at least 90% of us are going to have some significant back pain in our lifetime, and it resolves fully within months for most of us, although some uh, some recurrences in the future are always possible. But as I indicated, there is a risk of it becoming chronic or lasting for more than six months, and that risk appears to be increasing. Here's one recent study looking at the transition of acute to chronic back pain. And in this study, 68% of people had a resolution or a dramatic reduction in their pain. And in 32% of cases, it lasted more than six months. And the researchers identified factors such as obesity, smoking, pre-existing severe disability from any cause, and depression and anxiety as significant risk factors for the pain to become chronic. What is more, when they looked at patients who were provided higher interventional levels of care for their initial pain, which included early MRIs without a clear indication for them, 
prescription of medications beyond things like acetaminophen, NSAIDs, and muscle relaxants, especially opioids or benzos or steroids without NSAIDs, and referrals to specialty care like surgery, physiatry, and pain specialists like me, these interventions actually increased the risk of transition from acute to chronic low back pain. More super interesting information, the context of your injury matters. So a single motor vehicle collision on the, you know, on the road is associated with um, pain in the neck lasting longer than 12 months in up to 50% of patients. So certainly not everyone, and it depends on the study you're looking at, Um, But if you are not at fault in that car accident, your risk of having chronic neck pain is almost three times more likely than if you are at fault. There is a sport, Career Demolition Derby, where they drive cars into each other to destroy them. And a study about 20 years ago looked at people who had been in approximately 1,500 collisions with average speeds of 25 miles an hour and uh, max speeds around 45 miles an hour. And their rate of chronic neck pain related to the motor vehicle collisions they'd been in in Derby was 8%. I didn't calculate out what the, what the risk is divided, but that is compared to people with a single motor vehicle collision. Now I looked and looked for data to see if people who injure their back in a sport or leisure activity are more likely to have a resolution than people who injure their back in um, a work-related injury. And I couldn't find any data like that, which is really interesting. Although I did find a lot of information that suggests that leisure exercise activity is associated with a decreased risk in, um, in chronic back pain. So let's talk a little bit more about that, that risk about having an early MRI. So there is a set of guidelines regarding when we should order x-rays and MRIs for new back pain. And generally, we should not get it in the first four to six weeks of back pain unless there's a clear, clear risk for a tumor, an occult fracture, a spinal infection, or some kind of clear neurological functional impairment, which does not include pain or numbness running down into the leg. And multiple studies have shown at this point that if you get an MRI early before you meet criteria for it, it is associated with a higher risk of chronic pain and disability later. Not only that, but if patients are provided their full and specific reports of their imaging, rather than having a doctor summarize it and just tell them that they have typical age-related findings, which absolutely can include degeneration of discs and joints, Those patients who had the full report have more catastrophizing, are less likely to improve, and are more likely to proceed to surgery. Now, our electronic medical record provides full reports to all patients after they have their imaging studies, which I think in most cases is good and useful, but it does present a complicating issue when you're talking about imaging in subacute and chronic back pain. And why is that? Well, one of the reasons is that asymptomatic tissue abnormalities that you can see on imaging are super common. 
So when I order an uh, MRI for a patient with back pain, even when they meet criteria, I tell them in advance that they are very likely to have some age-related changes and that they should not hang their hat on the results because degeneration and tissue abnormalities like that can be seen on x-rays, MRIs, and ultrasound, even in people who are asymptomatic. And this is true for abnormal findings on necks, lower backs, rotator cuffs, knees, and even visceral and abdominal findings like endometriosis. And the older we are, the more abnormalities we will have, whether or not we feel them. Many people without pain have abnormalities on imaging, and many people with pain have no abnormalities on imaging or none that would appear to match their symptoms anyway. But that doesn't mean that tissue abnormalities that we can pick up on imaging never cause pain, but there's clearly not a one-to-one correlation. Also, I'm absolutely not saying that anyone's pain is not real. If you feel pain, it is absolutely real, but it may or may not be directly and immediately attributable to a tissue abnormality. And having a visible tissue finding, which again is totally normal for most people, does not mean that you will continue to have pain indefinitely until that tissue finding resolves or until it's surgically addressed. So paying attention to your pain makes it worse and less likely to go away. There's a set of studies from a guy named Ferrari, who I believe is in New Zealand. And he um, initially had a few dozen healthy participants for a study, and he divided them into two groups. The control group completed a questionnaire about how often and how severely they were experiencing bothersome symptoms over the prior two weeks, like headaches, neck pain, back pain, fatigue, abdominal pain, elbow pain, jaw pain, numbness and tingling in their arms and legs. And then they did nothing different. And two weeks later, they filled out the same questionnaire again. The study group filled out the questionnaire every day. And in the control group, the symptom frequency and severity stayed the same. But in the patients who had to fill out a symptom diary, and again, these are healthy patients with no diagnosed uh, illnesses or chronic pain disease, filling out that symptom diary on a daily basis resulted in them recalling symptoms twice as often and almost twice as severe than they had at the beginning of the study. And then that same researcher did a couple more studies. He looked at patients with acute whiplash symptoms and referred all of them to physical therapy and randomly assigned half of them to keep a pain diary. And all they did was just record the average or current level of pain once a day on a calendar. That's it. And at the end of three months, those patients who were advised to keep a pain diary for the first month were much more likely to... uh, I'm sorry, much less likely to say that they had recovered from their whiplash injury pain. And then he did another study, almost the same, but this time with acute low back pain. And in that study, the recovery of the pain diary group was only 52% at three months compared with the no pain diary group who were at 79% in three months. Interestingly though, if you use a pain diary when you already have chronic non-cancer pain, Uh, it doesn't seem to have the same striking risk. There was one study that looked at this in Thailand, I believe, and they did not show any um, decline in pain or uh, function and actually showed subtle improvements in pain and function. So this is a major issue for me. I really struggle with this issue as a pain medicine provider. 
First of all, almost every study on a treatment for pain will ask patients repeatedly how much pain they're having. And in doing that, they might actually be reducing their ability to improve. So studying patients with chronic pain regarding any intervention might actually be an intervention itself. And again, this might be true, less true in chronic than acute pain, but we really don't know that. Um, In my clinic visits, I have to get a sense of what my patients are experiencing and help figure out the severity and contributors to their pain. And so I have to ask about it, especially at the first visit. But in subsequent visits, I really always try to focus on functional advancement rather than pain. And I definitely advise patients from keeping very regular pain and symptom diaries unless there's a specific treatment that we're trying to evaluate in the short term. So Psychotherapy can modulate the risk of chronic pain. There are multiple psychological factors that increase the chronification of pain that we've identified over time. And these are active, moderate to severe anxiety and depression, pain catastrophizing, which you can evaluate with something called the pain catastrophizing scale, fear avoidance beliefs and behaviors where um, patients feel or act as though they cannot do anything that worsens their pain or could worsen their pain, acute or chronic post-traumatic stress, injustice experience, which you can um, test with the IEQ, that's the patient's attribution of their symptoms or problems to uh, basically being a victim of something anger and anger expression, all of these things increase the risk of severity of chronic pain and increase the risk of disability related to it. This is a super interesting study from Germany, looking at the effects of mind-body therapies added to typical care for acute sciatica. So um, all of these patients had acute sciatica pain, And sciatica is sort of a problematic catch-all term that just means pain that is from the back and radiates down the leg. It can be from a lot of different things. It can be from lumbar discs. And it was in this case, it can be from uh, sacroiliac joint or other kinds of um, tissues. But all of these patients were evaluated and excluded if they had tumor infection or neurological dysfunction requiring surgery. They all had MRIs and 100% of the MRIs showed some kind of disc pathology at L4-5 or L5-S1. And then all of the patients completed a psychological questionnaire. One had to do with depression and the other one um, was something that was developed by their clinic called the Kiel pain inventory. And if patients scored in the normal or low risk range on the psychological questionnaires, they were allowed to or encouraged to pursue typical care, which could include medications, physical therapy, plus or minus injections. Um, But if the patients were assessed to be high risk on the psychological questionnaires, they were then randomized to either biofeedback, intensive Uh, psychotherapy directed at whatever was identified in the pain questionnaires or typical care. And then there was a subgroup that were recommended to um, do the biofeedback or the psychotherapy and refused it. And I'm going to, I'm going to try and walk through this. I tried to add color to this, but it's a little hard to see. Okay. So this is the low risk group, the patients who um, were assessed to be low risk and pursued typical care. And as you can see, their pain rapidly declined and then generally stayed down, slight, slight increase at six months. 
And then this group is the patient who are high risk on the questionnaires, but referred to psychotherapy. Um, and you can see their pain looks almost the same as the low risk group. This group did biofeedback and specifically this was EMG biofeedback where sensors determine how tense muscles are. So patients can bring what might have been an involuntary um, feature of their body under voluntary control, learning how to relax those muscles and their pain gradually and mildly declines. This group is the uh, group of patients that were, let's see, high risk, usual care. So these are the patients that completed the questionnaire, were determined to be high risk, and were just given usual care. And this was the group that were referred to um, either biofeedback or psychotherapy and refused it. And in both cases, you can see that not only did their pain not improve, but it significantly worsened. Now look at the scale here. It's not a huge change that we're seeing overall, right? This isn't a zero to 10 point scale. We're looking at changes that are, um, that are, uh, you know, up to one on a 10 point scale without other treatments. But I think the take home here is if you or your doctor think that you might benefit from pain psychotherapy at the time that you have an acute injury, not getting that psychotherapy in some form might actually be worse than not doing treatment at all. Here's another slide looking at a much more recent study evaluating a kind of pain psychotherapy called pain reprocessing therapy. Um, this just came out in JAMA this year. So in this case, they were looking at patients with chronic rather than acute or subacute back pain. And the researchers compared their usual care with an open label placebo, which we'll discuss more later, or with a kind of pain psychotherapy called pain reprocessing therapy. In brief, it's a kind of treatment where patients are educated on the fact that chronic pain is generally a disease of abnormally heightened brain alarm systems, and that activities that instigate pain are not dangerous to the body and that psychosocial threats, basically negative thoughts, worries, and emotions may trigger pain and that they can develop a strategy to manage and reduce these psychosocial threats. And compared to the last study where patients had up to 30 hours of psychotherapy, these patients had eight hours of psychotherapy. The patients in the PRT group had a rapid and sustained improvement in their pain. And when they looked at functional MRIs after treatment in the different groups of patients, the patients who had undergone the PRT therapy showed significant differences in pain processing centers of their brains compared to the placebo group patients. Given the significant and worrisome increase in chronic pain in the U.S., I think that early incorporation of pain psychotherapeutic strategies should be looked at as part of the initial treatment al algorithm for acute pains, especially things like back pain, which is, if not the primary, then absolutely one of the primary disabling diseases in this country. I also think that we should study whether or not there could be a preventive benefit to pain psychotherapeutic strategies provided before people even have a, an an initial acute pain, whether it should be incorporated into school-based health education or part of training for high-risk professions for chronic pain, like military service. 
And just to be clear, I definitely support that patients with significant acute or subacute pain see a provider to help them evaluate and ensure they do not have signs of an urgent and severe disease like a tumor, fracture, or infection. But for most common pain conditions, nonspecific back and neck pain, arthritis and headaches, things like that, we don't find you know, we don't routinely find dangerous abnormalities that would necess- necessitate the patients restrict their function for safety reasons. Pivoting here, we're going to talk about other things that might influence the chronification of pain. So one of the most obvious things is to avoid or stop smoking as early as you can. So chronic low back pain is significantly higher in daily smokers than non-smokers and more lifetime cigarettes mean more pain risk over time. Um, Another thing that's really hard for me is that uh, refined sugar is also associated with um, different types of chronic pain, mostly osteoarthritis and arthritis in general. So added refined sugar increases the risk of spinal pain and knee arthritis. Um, This is a study looking at 4,000 adults where a higher intake of sugar um, caused more back pain and Uh, They saw this primarily if it was more than 8% of patients' total calories or more than 11 teaspoons daily of added sugar or refined sugar for someone on a 2000 calorie diet, which is, you know, might be high for women, might be a little low for men. Um, For reference, one can of soda typically has 10 teaspoons of sugar. So there might be a threshold effect for increased risk with sugar. So if you look at the studies on sugary drinks, having five or more a week is associated with an increased risk, but four or fewer might not have the same risk. That's just how they categorize it. And you can see um, in this study, they're looking at all types of arthritis. And in this case, they're looking at young um, adults, ages 20 to 30. And the people who are drinking five or more sugary beverages a week had three times the risk of arthritis. Okay, are there other toxins uh, in food that we should avoid? How about pesticides? I think this is a really interesting question. Lots of integrative doctors are talking about uh, pesticides and, and food additives as problems with metabolic disease, but there are no studies looking at pesticide load and the risk for developing chronic pain that I could find. Um, Pesticide and herbicide exposure is increasing over time. For example, uh, the products found in Roundup herbicide have increased. And if you measure the amount in urine, it's increased by at least fivefold in one study um, over the last, I think, 20 years, 30 years. So could we use farmers as a proxy for the general population and figure out if their work-related pesticide exposure is associated with more pain? I could actually only find one study even on this, but in that study, organic farmers were actually more likely than conventional farmers to report musculoskeletal pain. Not sure how to interpret that. How about other food toxins? Is gluten a toxin for pain? Lots of people talk about this. So if you have pain, specifically neuropathic pain in the study that I reference here, and you test positive for celiac disease markers in your blood, then eliminating gluten usually does improve pain. If you have a self-identified gluten sensitivity, even if you don't have positive labs for celiac disease or a specific gluten wheat allergy that you can pick up on an IgE test, Eating gluten might increase pain, but it also might be a FODMAP or fructan sensitivity, which we'll we'll get into in a second here. But if you think 
that you are gluten sensitive and that your symptoms worsen when you eat gluten, they probably do. That's what, that's basically what that study said. Okay. How about FODMAPs? These are uh, certain kinds of sugar that we find high in wheat, allium, stone fruits, some kinds of beans and veggies and sweeteners. If you want the details, this is super easy to find online. So low FODMAP diets improved fibromyalgia in one study, um, and they definitely appear to improve abdominal pain symptoms in IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome or functional abdominal pain. And that's been shown in multiple studies. How about just a general diet and nutritional changes? This is a super busy slide and I'm going to summarize it for folks that are not used to reading meta-analyses here. So there are, there are way too many studies to look at uh, in one lecture um, and they're looking at arthritis, fibromyalgia, migraines, neuropathic pain. So I'm just going to share this one meta-analysis, which is a study of multiple studies looking at this question. And for those of you who are not typically reading meta-analyses, this is called a forest plot. Each of the text lines to the left is a specific study. And in this case, the studies are grouped by the general type of intervention. So we have a handful of studies looking at changing to a vegetarian or vegan diet adding a specific food. Um, and in this case, it was mostly a berry juice and used mostly for arthritis or an elimination diet to eliminate typical inflammatory foods or something like MSG or gluten or a calorie restriction diet or increasing consumption of foods that have omega-3s like cold water fish or seafood or switching to a Mediterranean diet. And then all the outcomes of these studies are summarized, and these black diamonds represent a sort of sum of all the information. And the further the diamond is to the left of this line, the more certain we are that this type of diet is likely to help pain. If the diamond was further to the right, then we would be uh, more certain that this diet is not likely to help pain. And if it crosses or kind of sits at the center, then we can be less certain of the findings overall and can't make a lot of the results. So in this case, we can say that there appears to be a benefit of most of these types of diet change, although we can be relatively less certain that calorie restrictive diets alone are beneficial because it does cross over the um, midline. And diet studies are hard to interpret because unless people's diets are fully controlled, making one change almost always results in multiple small changes. For example, if you switch to eating more ocean fish, you're probably also going to eat less less red meat. So which change is really helpful? Or if you switch to a Mediterranean diet, are you just improving because you're eating more fish and garlic or because you're eating less junk food and sugar? Also, in almost all cases, patients know if they're changing their diet. So maybe just a placebo effect combined with optimism and a sense of self-efficacy that they're able to make a super hard diet change because this is super hard. All of these are. And maybe that's what results in them feeling better. But in any case, we can certainly say that trying to eat a whole food diet, whether it's Mediterranean or vegetarian or specifically high in oily fish, does not appear to be harmful and is probably helpful. From nutrition, let's move on to bugs, the microbiota, and the gut-brain axis in pain. So this is sort of zeitgeisty. There are a lot of things coming out these days and... Um, a lot of patients are interested in this phenomenon or possibility. 
So we have trillions of bacteria and yeast microorganisms in our gut. They're mostly in the large intestine. We have at least a thousand, often to 2000 species per person, and they aid in digestion, immunity, nutrient absorption, and production of biochemicals. They produce lots of biochemicals that can have beneficial or harmful consequences, um, like short chain fatty acids, which are uh, a chemical that can decrease inflammation, precursors to serotonin and dopamine. So serotonin are happy neurotransmitter maybe, and dopamine are euphoric neurotransmitter if you want to simplify things and many others. Patients with chronic pain are more likely to have a dysbiosis in a couple different studies. Now, that might not be every kind of chronic pain, but we can say at least CRPS, fibromyalgia, IBS, which is that irritable bowel syndrome or chronic abdominal pain patients are more likely to have a dysbiosis or an unfavorable balance of good to bad bacteria or possibly an unfavorable uh, concentration of bacteria in different parts of the gut. So patients with fibromyalgia appear to be at higher risk for SIBO, small intestinal bowel overgrowth. So the small intestine should have many fewer bacteria than the large intestine. And small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is when you have usually an imbalance in the type of bacteria and you have more bacteria in the small intestine than you would expect than might be optimal. It's usually diagnosed with a breath test. So um, patients make some dietary changes and then they take a pill with some sugar in it, or they drink a liquid with some sugar in it that we don't digest that the bacteria can digest. And then every five or 15 minutes, they blow into a tube and different metabolites, um, methane and hydrogen from the bacteria that live in their gut are measured. And that's how people can make the diagnosis of SIBO. Um, But it's not a super high sensitivity test. So it misses a lot of people who might have SIBO or maybe a slightly lower grade kind of bacterial overgrowth, maybe even 40%. Um, And why do we care? Well, we care because if we identify SIBO and we treat it, it does seem to reduce global pain in the studies that have been done. But there are just a few studies, um, and it's primarily fibromyalgia that I've looked at and found any information for. So how can you get more of the good little guys? How do you get a better microflora? Um, Hard to say, but we think probably eating more fiber and the fiber that is in food appears to be more effective than the fiber that's in fiber supplements. Um, And the, what I was mentioning before, the short chain fatty acids, good bugs eat the fiber and they make these anti-inflammatory chemicals with it. Uh, And that's thought to play a significant part in the gut brain axis. And they're finding a lot of information um, in animal studies regarding this, but not a lot of um, information in humans yet. Just generally increasing produce in our diet, probably helpful. Um, Interestingly, reduced or better managed stress probably also is a significant um, uh, benefit to our microflora. There was an interesting study where they looked at people who had an intensive four-day military training exercise where they were in Arctic temperatures, they were sleep restricted, they were food restricted, and they they, um, had to do uh, long exercise halls. 
And this caused significant multiple changes in bacterial loads, bacterial metabolites, and the balance of bacteria in their gut when it was tested. And then um, I think a sort of obvious one is probiotics or prebiotics, but, um, and prebiotics is mostly fiber or some form of fiber, a kind of sugar that, that bugs that we want to grow and develop would use to flourish. Um, And we use them. I use them a lot. There's data for some things, but I think there's not super clear data for, for pain unless it's related to particular um, abdominal conditions. So even more interesting information. Um, a lot of people are starting to be aware of stool transplants or fecal transplants as a treatment for conditions like C. difficile colitis and sometimes inflammatory bowel disease There's one case report of a, um, uh, I'll say a human, (laughs) case report of a human who had resolution of their fibromyalgia symptoms as well as their IBS with a fecal transplant. And in mice, uh, when you feed mice a Western diet and they get obese and they develop neuropathic pain, a fecal transplant results in reduced obesity and reduced neuropathic pain behaviors. Okay, so moving on to movement. Basically, I'm just going to say that historically, we've done a lot of pain contingent kind of recommendations. And I do this a lot where I tell patients, you know, um, well, it's like the old joke, the patient comes to the doctor and pushes on their head or their belly or whatever and says, it hurts every time I do this. And the doctor says, well, don't do this, right? So patients say, it hurts when I bend over. And so we've been telling them, don't bend over. It hurts when I use my hand. Don't use your hand. Well, avoiding activities that increase your pain in the short term might not improve pain in the long run. Um, So interestingly, avoiding some kinds of triggers, particularly noise triggers in people with migraine, increases their trigger sensitivity so that when they are exposed to noise, their their likelihood of getting a migraine appears higher. And um, pacing strategies that are pain avoidant are associated with increased disability. Pacing is a thing that a lot of chronic pain patients know about. A lot of pain psychologists and doctors talk about, and it basically is a strategy where you try to balance your Um, energy expenditure so that you're able to do the things you want, right? And there are a couple different strategies for this. You can do movements up until the point that you're starting to get pain and then back down, take a rest and then try again. And again, do movements until your pain is triggered and then take a rest again. Um, Or you can say every day, whether I'm in pain or not, I'm going to do this amount of activity. I'm going to walk two blocks. And then in a week, whether I'm in pain or not, I'm going to walk two and a half blocks. And that's a quota-based kind of pacing. The first strategy is more of a pain avoidant kind of um, pacing. And what we can see is in patients who use the pain avoidant strategies their pain does not tend to be better, but their function tends to be worse. There are more than, you know, there's more than one way to interpret this. And these studies are always hard to interpret because it might be that patients with more severe pain have to do the pain avoidant type pacing. And I'm not aware of any study that has taken patients and tried to separate them and randomize and say, okay, you guys do quota based 
um, where you do so much every day, whether it hurts or not. And you guys do uh, pain avoidant or pain contingent pacing and then see what happens. But there are some studies in the works right now looking at that. There are also studies in the works looking at pain non-contingent or quota-based exercise and rehabilitation. A few studies have already been published, um, and it appears to be effective at least for chronic low back pain um, and CRPS. But again, it may not be generalizable to every kind of pain. We have to kind of see as the data comes out. So I think this is super interesting. I knew about this even before I went into pain medicine. And it was one of the studies that I think um, really set off my my, uh, love for integrative health and um, addressing disability in pain medicine. So in Australia, in the late 90s, disability claims um, were starting to go up related to chronic low back pain. And the country in two states had a campaign where they, um, where they basically had commercials in primetime spots and they had medical personnel and they had uh, celebrities who themselves had had significant back pain in the past and been able to rehabilitate through it, go on TV and tell patients a few things that if they have back pain, they should stay active and exercise. They should not rest for prolonged periods and they should remain at work. They also put together a booklet called the back book that had very similar information and it was made available Um, in more than 10 languages and and all over those states. And at the time, the information campaign um, was going, and even for a year after that, disability claims for back back pain went down very significantly, this blue dotted line here. Um, Although you can see that claims for other conditions increased slightly during that time, which I think is interesting and would be an interesting comparison to see what went up when back pain went down. Okay. As promised, I'm going to say a few things about open-label placebos and non-deceptive placebos, which are another kind of zeitgeisty thing that you might see a lot in the lay press these days. So open-label placebo is when you are given a placebo and you know it is a placebo. Sometimes when um, it is provided to you, it is provided with information about the placebo effect. So the placebo effect, as I tell my patients and my fellows, is the part of the medication effect that is the body healing itself. It is a neurohumoral immune effect. And in many cases, it's even measurable, right? There are um, cytokines that are measurable. There are uh, uh, antibodies that are measurable. Um, If Uh, Anyone has ever heard David Rakel speak? He's an integrative medicine doctor. Um, He did a great study where he looked at empathy in the treatment of of acute respiratory tract infections. And the more empathetic a provider was, the more patients' antibodies in their nose changed and the more their cytokines, which are kind of inflammatory um, chemical in the body, changed so that the doctor themselves was the the treatment in that case. Um, There are also some studies that show that self-compassion can have similar effects as someone else providing you empathy in terms of changes in your um, cytokines, changes in your antibody levels. But suffice to say, 
we know from lots of studies that there is a benefit to placebos, right? We're always comparing our other medications or our procedures to placebos. So why not just use the placebo? Would it work if you tell the patient that it's a placebo? Well, it appears to. It doesn't have a huge benefit. The benefits are usually mild, but um, in studies, it appears to have some benefit for neck pain, back pain, IBS, chemo-related side effects, menopausal symptoms. Um, There's a study that's being done right now on insomnia. I'm interested to see how that turns out. Um, And again, the benefit might be fairly minimal, but it's with minimal risk as well. So there was a op-ed piece looking at the open-label placebos, and um, that author was critical of open-label placebos because in the study that was referenced in that particular paper, um, they only showed an improvement in pain of 0.7 on a 10-point scale, and I believe that was for back pain. Well, interestingly, in the best and largest meta-analysis we have on opioid therapy for for, um, chronic pain, where studies are three months or longer, the benefit of opioids compared to placebo is 0.7 on a 10-point scale. So, you know, I think it's it's worth looking into. Um, I'm really interested in the question of whether or not if you prescribe yourself a placebo, if that is as effective as a placebo your doctor prescribes. There's some studies that show an injected placebo is more effective than an oral placebo. That was done looking at patients with migraines and the patients that got the injection had improvement faster. Another um, study looking at headaches looked at branded versus non-branded placebos. And the non-branded placebos did not perform as well as the branded placebos in that study. Um, If you are interested in branded placebos, there are a few companies now that make placebo. Um, So if patients can prescribe their own placebos and it's just as effective as if a doctor prescribes them an open label placebo, maybe we should all be doing that or we should think about it. You know, it's definitely an opportunity. Um, Another interesting study that uh, I came across when I was putting this together is the idea of conditioning of placebo, kind of using a Pavlovian response where your body will come to associate the placebo with benefit. In this study, they were looking at patients who were recovering from surgery and all patients were provided opioid medication um, for the acute uh, pain period following their surgery. But one randomized group was was also prescribed placebo. They were told it was a placebo and they were told to take the placebo at the time that they took the opioid medication in the first couple of days after surgery. And then when they felt like they didn't need as much of the opioid, they could try using the placebo instead. So they called this a conditioned placebo, where the the body and mind would start to expect that relief would be associated with it. And what they saw was in the conditioned placebo group, there was a 30% lower opioid use in the first two weeks after surgery, and there was no worsening in pain in that group despite the um, reduced opioid I actually um, had a patient last week that we've been slowly weaning off of hydrocodone for um, 
about two years related to a very old injury that he's recovered from. And he told me, I wish you could just give me a placebo instead. I'm tired of, you know, weaning this. And I, I told him about this study. So he was going to go and get some breath mints and try this strategy and see if it made any, um, it provided any benefit for him for what he wanted to do in weaning his medication. Okay. Just a couple notes on sleep and sleep optimization training. So experimentally, sleep deprivation causes hyperalgesia, which is a heightened sense of pain in both human and animal studies. And sleep deprivation also counteracts the analgesic effects of opioid-type medications and serotonin-type medications, so basically antidepressants that work through serotonin. CBTI for insomnia is a kind of formulaic or, uh, you know, well-described type of psychotherapy that is used to improve sleep and is, um, is found to be helpful in patients with chronic pain, reduces pain interference, although it doesn't appear to change the severity of pain, um, in the short term. And if you do CBTI in patients who have fibromyalgia and insomnia, and most of them do have some kind of sleep disorder, insomnia is a common one. It improves their fatigue, their functioning, um, pain, catastrophizing anxiety and depression. Again, in the shortest term may not improve their, um, may not improve their pain. And I haven't seen studies looking, you know, a year out after someone completes CBTI. Excellent talk. I really enjoyed that. And I, lo- I always learn so much from you, Dr. Reeds. So we do have some questions. So let's go ahead and go to the questions. So one of the questions is, if you have pain, what is the most meaningful lifestyle change that one can make? Well, it's kind of, you know, I, I there are two ways to think about this. Uh, meaningful lifestyle change. It depends maybe on what the low hanging fruit is, right? Uh, If you ask a doctor, what is the best kind of exercise? You know, many times we will say the kind that you'll do. That's the, that's the best kind. So So true. Some, whether or not you think that um, you should go after the thing that is the most harmful or the thing that you're most likely to be able to change. Right. Okay. Because that, that can be a different thing. I do think that, I do think that pain psychotherapy or some kind of mind body strategy to reframe pain that people are experiencing is absolutely critical. Again, if it needs to be addressed and it's not addressed in some form, whether that's with a one-on-one pain psychotherapist, with any of the pain um, psychotherapy apps that are out there, a variety of books. I've had some patients that have seen a ton of doctors. They've had all kinds of injections. They've had some kinds of surgery And um, I have them read a John Sarno book that probably a lot of people are aware of John Sarno, um, who is a sort of mind body pain um, specialist. That's really what he's dedicated his his work to. Um, And and the patient will come back and say, this is the most important thing I've ever done for my pain. So I do think that that's critical. If you need it, that's critical. Um, I also think that smoking has just shown so many uh, risks for chronic neck pain, chronic back pain, failure to improve pain after different types of surgery, 
um, I would definitely put that high on the list as something to do. And then otherwise, I would say um, either do what you think is the most uh, feasible or address the thing that is the most abnormal, right? If you're living on gummy bears and Coca-Cola, I would address that if it's possibility for you. Um, or if you're sleeping two or three hours a night because you're stressed out or, or binge watching or whatever, I would address that. Excellent. Excellent. I agree. So um, starting to modify the things that they have control over, such as diet, sleep, exercise, all of those things are very important. I think that's great advice. Here's another interesting question. How many sessions of acupuncture do you need to pursue to have long lasting effects? Yeah, I didn't put my acupuncture information in here, but there is definitely information about that. So um, in general, uh, acupuncture is slightly better than just putting needles in randomly, which is better than um, not putting needles in at all. Uh, So there seems to be a benefit just from the needles and the whole therapeutic encounter with the acupuncturist. Um, The effect sizes in meta-analysis start to become significant at five or more sessions and generally with five or more needles. So I usually tell patients that you should um, make sure that per treatment, you should get five or more uh, needles, and then you should go to at least five sessions to start to evaluate whether or not you're getting benefit. Um, But most of the studies that show a benefit that is, you know, let's say equivalent or approximate to what you could achieve with medications, which we would typically think of as a reduction of between one and three points on a 10 point scale, um, occurs somewhere between 10 and 20 sessions. Okay, good. That's good information. And if if I'm not mistaken, Many insurance plans now cover acupuncture because there is so much data to support it. So that's, if that's something you're interested in, you can always pursue that Mm -hmm. with your primary care or for recommendations, come to our pain management center, of course. And then also um, you can call your insurance company and get a list. Well, Dr. Reese, this was an amazing, amazing talk and you covered so much and obviously you're, you just have a wealth of knowledge. And so we really appreciate you sharing your evening with us today. So thank you for attending our lecture this evening and have an excellent night. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.